I have two questions on the theoretical end of the spectrum, but I think we can get this to where we can talk about why strength training might be useful or interference. Good morning. Happy Monday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. Lots of things to do today. We're going to dig into a, a, a Q&A. It's going to be a combination of of two questions. Try to make it useful. Um, some of this is going to be theoretical, so it might be interesting to, to some of you. And then the rest of you, you just turn it off. It's okay. I'm only expecting about five or six views on this one. Um, so we're going to dig into some theoretical first. And this comes from Ryan. <clears throat> and Ryan says, you said that the ability to expand and compress and expand again is a universal principle. Can you give a handful of, of examples in the human body outside of gait or shoulder and hip range of motion? And also, can you name some examples in the natural world and the universe? I warned you. Okay. This is actually a fun question for me because um, I do like to kind of talk about some of this stuff. But Ryan, one of the things you have to recognize is that everything about you is a compression and expansion. So let's just look at your heart. And I think everybody has a, a representation in their head when they're looking at a heart beating. They understand that blood flows into the heart, it expands, it compresses, and then the blood flows out. And the, by the way, the heart doesn't pump it out. That's a different story. Um, but everything inside of you is going to be based on compression expansion. So the peristalsis that moves the, the lunge through your gut is, is, is compression expansion. If we look at something local, like muscular contraction. So if I concentrically oriented muscle, there's actually a higher pressure um, within that muscle. So the intramuscular pressure is higher as we reduce the concentric orientation. We have a reduction um, in, in pressure there as well. So again, we always have compression expansion um, taking place somewhere at some time. It all depends on where we're looking. We're also going to see this as, as global strategies. So every movement that you have is going to have some some peak moment of, of force output, which would be representative of the, the compressive strategy. To what degree is then dependent on, on what you're doing. You know, if you're drinking a glass of water, it's not going to be your maximum um, peak force that you could, you could produce, but there is going to be a peak in that moment in time. If I'm doing a vertical jump, it's a little bit easier to, to see that representation of, of, of that peak moment. Um, so again, so every sporting movement is going to have this, this expansion to compression to expansion representation. If we're talking about a high jump, the moment that the high jumper plants his foot into the ground, there's going to be a, a peak resultant. And then as he leaves the ground, he's going to re-expand. Um, sprinter, same thing, hitting the ground, compression to expansion. If I'm throwing a baseball, there's a moment in time where everything squeezes tight, time stops, and I produce this maximum output of force. It's just very, very brief. And so we don't don't see these things because our, our eyes just just can't stop time to, to recognize that but we can see these things we can measure these things in like force plates and, and we can watch it on video and such so Ryan everything becomes this this compression to expansion to compression if we look at, at the, the universal principles if you will we can get really off the deep end here and we can say that okay space-time has a very specific shape that looks like that and that's called a light cone because light behaves the same way time behaves the same way 
space, the influence of gravity, etc., all play into this sort of expansion, compression, expansion. Um, if you were, if you were theoretically near a black hole, you would probably recognize this shape as well. Um, so again, this is all theoretical physics stuff, which is way above my pay grade. But anyway, it makes this a nice representation when we talk about our external rotation and, and, and internal rotation representations of, of how we move. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna expand that, that point where I have the, the meeting of the two cones a little bit so I can show you where this internal rotation moment is. And now we can start to influence this. So now we're gonna go to Andrew's question. So Andrew says, for someone who's looking to optimize performance or, or hypertrophy, you say that there's often a trade-off that occurs between muscle hypertrophy and general movement capabilities given the compression that is created with muscle hypertrophy. Um, however, I know you use bilateral squats and I'm sure other symmetrical exercises in your programs is the advantage of bilateral movements simply that they're easier to standardize and teach, allowing for quicker learning and more accurate tracking, or am I missing something? Okay. So when we're using bilateral symmetrical activities, which, which are higher load, higher force capabilities, our goal is to increase that moment of time where we can produce force. And so, so as we add weight to the bar, as we're using these, these bigger movements, our goal is to teach ourselves to, to achieve that, that element of maximum force output, maximum compression. And as long as we're increasing our force and it doesn't interfere with anything else, then, then we've got a very, very useful strategy for training here. Now, the, the, the byproduct of this though is I'm increasing compression which slows down time. So it increases the duration that I am in this internally rotated force producing position. And so if, if by adding my ability to produce force requires that I increase the amount of time that I utilize that. So now I've extended this period where I'm, where I'm producing force and I actually slow down, where I actually reduce my velocity, where I needed velocity, I have now created interference. And, and so that's when force production can become detrimental. It, be, it, it, it just simply interferes with our ability to, to represent that one moment in time where I have this maximum peak force output that has to occur very briefly. So, you know, if, if I was a golfer, and I extended the duration of the of the amount of force that I was I was trying to put out. I actually slowed down the the club head because what I want is I want that peak to be recognized at a, a very very brief moment in time um, that allows the highest possible force production. Um, if I have to reduce the field of external rotation that I have available to me, which is representative of, of the amount of motion that I need to demonstrate ranges of motion or velocity, if I have to compress that to increase my force production, I have now again created an interference. So, so bilateral symmetrical exercises are, are well designed to increase my ability to produce a compressive strategy, which allows me to increase my, my peak forces at the right time. Um, hypertrophy is a byproduct of that. Hypertrophy by itself, um, again, to develop any significant amount of hypertrophy, there's going to be some compressive strategies associated, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's interference. Um, so again, the way that we figure this stuff out, um, uh, Andrew, is that we train people. 
And so we actually have to do things and we determine what is the best course of action. And so we have to have some form of key performance indicator that is going to allow us to determine whether we're on the right path or not. So if I'm trying to improve someone's acceleration, so let's say that I'm measuring their, 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 their acceleration through a, a, a 10 meter um, sprint from, from a, a standing start, I take them into the gym, I train them, I bring them back and I retest retest that that 10 meter sprint and if that continues to improve then my strategy in the weight room is good and so if i'm using bilateral symmetrical activities to do that great but at some point in time and maybe it happens and maybe it doesn't at some point in time it can become interference the only way that you can tell whether this is going to happen is as you train them and again this is why we monitor key performance indicators so if i increase force production if i reduce my my external rotation field but i don't need that range of motion to perform my activity then again, I'm not creating interference. So all of these activities are great activities. We use them all the time. We have to buy bigger trap bars um, because we have people that can pull so much weight that we don't have enough room to put the weights on. And so again, these are not bad things. Bilateral symmetrical activities are very, very useful at certain times for certain people in certain circumstances. What you have to do is you have to understand that this is always an N equals one experiment. And we're talking about an, an individual here and then their response to training. So again, we've always got the expansion compression expansion on the table as a representation of movement. We superimpose force production on top of that to determine what is going to be the best course of action under a specific context. So guys, I hope that answers a little bit of your question for you. I realize this is very theoretical, kind of off the beaten path. Anyway, we'll come back tomorrow with, with more fun. Have a great day and I'll see you tomorrow. So let's come up with a framework to address ankle instability. Good morning, happy Tuesday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. All right, it has been a great Tuesday already. I'm kind of digging it, so let's go right into the Q&A. This comes from Austin and Austin says there's a lot of research around motor control exercises after an ankle sprain or I also see it with shoulder rehab. The rationale tends to be that re-educating the neuromuscular systems you can better control joint position. It seems to me that the types of intervention used to induce motor control may just be ways to increase the patient's ability to manage pressures around the joint. I'd love to get your take on this. Thank you. So Austin, thanks for the question. This is actually really good um, because I think you're right. I, I don't think there's any question about that. It, 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 that's how we how we move. We move by by shifting pressures and volumes. And so as we are quote unquote re-educating the the system to move, that is the management process that we're trying to restore. But let's let's look at this from the perspective of, of force management. That we have seven components of, of force that we're going to, to be dealing with when we are quote unquote re-educating the system. And if we leave something out, then we end up with, with people with, with potentially chronic problems like the old chronic ankle instability, if you will. Um, so the seven components of force, as you all know, are magnitude, location, direction, duration, frequency, variability, and rate. So we want to make sure that we are addressing all of those as we progress somebody through this, this ankle rehabilitative process. Most of the instabilities that we see um, um, from an ankle perspective, we're just going to use that as our example, um, tends to be the subjective where they say, hey, it feels like it's going to give way in this position. Um, very rarely do we are we capable of even separating out 
proprioceptive or, or uh, somatosensory elements from, from the motor output. It is the same system. We're not going to really separate those, but clinically speaking, um, we're not going to be able to follow some of the guidelines that you'll see in some of the research where they actually use uh, apparatus to, to, or apparati, um, to determine whether we have an input problem or output problem. It's going to be both under all circumstances. If you need a test of, of any kind, if you work in, in those clinical situations where you need a, a test, the STAR excursion balance test has, has some research behind it has a little bit of crossover between some of the proprioceptive element and the motor output element. Um, if they are actually capable of separating those, there's some hop tests that might be useful as tests and retests, again, if, if you have to use those kind of things. Um, again, those are your comparisons. Now, let's talk about, about what we're dealing with though under these, these unstable ankle situations. Under most circumstances, we're actually dealing with an early propulsive representation of, of a foot. And, and the way we know this is if, if you look at some of the research and they talk about the anticipatory position, so they'll have somebody jump off of a box and they, they, they demonstrate this, this uh, anticipatory representation where the, the foot is actually landing or positioned towards an inverted position. So this would be our ER representation of the foot. And again, because we're gonna to be toes down, it's gonna be our early representation. So what we're actually looking at here is a foot that kind of looks like that. So I have the ER tibia, I, I have a foot that's biased towards ER or supination. Um, also in, in these same uh, uh, research studies, you're gonna see a reduction in the amount of knee flexion on landing and you'll see a loss of hip ER um, under many of these circumstances. <clears throat> and so what we're actually looking at is we have a foot that cannot internally rotate. So, so, so we're sort of stuck at the end of, of heel rocker. We want to have an ankle rocker under normal circumstances, but we have a foot that, that can't really do that. We still have to get force into the ground. So if I'm if the tibia is biased towards ER, that's going to keep the knee extended, but I need my internal rotation. So where am I going to get my internal rotation from? So then we have to grab our pelvis and we have to say, okay, well, I can't do it through the ankle. I can't do it through the knee. So what am I going to do? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to anteriorly orient my pelvis, which is internal rotation, which is my force into the ground. It's gonna help me drive the medial aspect of the foot into the ground um, so I can protect myself from another inversion sprain, but in, in doing so, I'm going to experience the loss of ER. So what we have to look at this, we can't just look at this as an ankle problem, we have to look at this systemically. And so from a strategy, what we're gonna to try to do is we're gonna to try to restore the capabilities to get through middle propulsion um, and the thing we also have to recognize is we can't just do this slowly. We're going to have to impose some, some rate and some variability um, into this program. Otherwise, because we move so quickly through space, um, if we don't address those things, then maybe we don't get the input information that, that we need that's going to protect us at, at higher rates of speed. So if you were to step on a pebble and you suddenly quickly invert, then you're going to be more likely to, to re-sprain that ankle. So, Let's go ahead and structure out a little bit of a, of a framework from a programming standpoint. Because we're dealing with, with a foot position, a knee position, and a hip position, the first thing that we're gonna wanna do is we're gonna try to reduce that anterior orientation. One of the easiest ways to do this, if we put somebody's foot on the wall in supine, we can actually capture the foot cues, we can capture the pelvic position and the, and the reorientation. So we're gonna use something like one of our cross connects or one of our supine supine propulsive strategies with a, with a reach or, or something along those lines. 
Now that's gonna statically recapture this pelvic position, but now again, we wanna think about, about progressive nature. So eventually we're gonna stand them up and we're gonna do some form of cross connect there, um, which again, still static, but, but at, least, at least we're upright and we're getting the cues from, from the ground up. This then turns into some form of dynamic activity. It could be any number of activities. Um, I think I'm showing here um, like a single leg R RDL with, with the landmine, which is, is just one example that you could use. And then eventually this becomes something that's, that's very dynamic or explosive where we're actually reinforcing some of the yielding capabilities. So now we're, we're teaching the, the tissues to behave at, at higher rates of, of speed and absorbing and, and releasing energy. And so we wanna use that process um, throughout throughout this program. The next thing that we're gonna wanna be able to do though is we gotta be able to translate that tibia over the foot. So we gotta go through, through middle propulsion. And so we're gonna use a lot of split stance activities under these circumstances. Um, initially, we're probably gonna wanna use a front foot elevated um, situation, which is gonna reduce the load on, on that, that affected side and allow us to translate that tibia uh, a little bit more effectively, capture the, the true internal rotation through, through the, the hip that's gonna allow us to keep the medial calcaneus on the ground and that first metatarsal head to prevent the, the ER and, and that's gonna result in our, our inversion sprains. From there, we just progress loading. And so what we can do is we can, we can tip your, your backside up. So we put a rear foot elevated here. And again, we've just increased the load, but we're still translating that, that tibia forward. And now we start to think about, okay, what else can I superimpose? I need some variability and I need some rate. And so here we might use some oscillatory impulses in that split stance to help us capture these, these foot cues dynamically and explosively and still hold on to our, to our internal rotation. So again, we, we wanna think about imposing these other elements of force as we progress through the program. Then we start to play with, with direction. So, so what we want, want to do is expand the challenge of, of moving towards internal and external rotation. And again, hanging on to those foot cues. So first metatarsal head on the ground, medial calcaneus. So this could be something like a, a sled drag, or we start to, to move our, our lunge patterns or split squat patterns uh, more laterally. Um, and then we start to work on maybe some cutting drills. We can use um, elevation. So, so we, we use our, our dynamic step-ups onto boxes to reduce some of the ground contact forces. Um, but then we can build in change of direction there. And eventually you just get somebody down on the ground and you work normal agility. Now, keep this in mind that we have to adapt these things for, for the human. So, so not everybody's gonna be doing the, the dynamic box work. Not everybody's gonna need to work on their high speed change of direction like we would for some athletes. So, so let's adapt this program to those individuals. So Austin, I hope that gives you uh, a couple of ideas um, as far as what we're talking about when we're talking about motor control and, and re-education. Um, but you're absolutely right. It's all about pressure management um, in, in, in position. So um, if you have any more questions, um, please send them to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com, and I will see you guys tomorrow. Good morning. Happy Wednesday. I have neuro coffee in hand and it is perfect. Okay, man, Wednesdays are always crunch time for me. I got a bunch of stuff I gotta do before I hit the clinic. And um, so we're gonna dive right into this morning's Q&A, which is actually kind of a fun one. It's about bench press, so everybody's gonna love this.
Um, this comes from Ben. Ben says, hey, Bill, I hope you're well. I am. Thank you for asking. Um, thanks for doing all these Q&As. You're welcome. Uh, he says, I've got a wide ISA client who presents with limited shoulder internal rotation on both sides, more on the right. He also has limited shoulder flexion, but more on the left. So it's more limitation on the left. And he experiences right shoulder pain when bench pressing. Um, his right elbow likes to tuck in more. All his hip measurements are limited as well. Would love your thoughts and solutions on this. Okay, Ben, you didn't give me a whole lot to work with, but you gave me some really, really good clues that I think um, we've got enough information to, to help you out. So let's dig into this. First and foremost, let's describe what's actually going on while he's bench pressing. Um, so you're, you're talking about a position where the left arm seems to be away from his body and his right arm seems to be tucked in. And so what that representation actually is, is his rib cage and, and thorax are actually turning, turning to the right. So when you have your hands fixed on a bar, that's gonna um, secure the, the hands in, in pronation, which is gonna put us towards internal rotation, which is where we gotta be anyway for a bench press. But point being, if I've got limited shoulder flexion, the typical uh, compensatory strategy for limited shoulder flexion, especially in the early range of shoulder flexion, which you would be exposed to in, in a bench press, is to turn away from it. So again, so he's, so he's actually turning his rib cage on, on the bench, and so this arm looks like it's far away, and this one looks like it's tucked in. Now, here's the problem with that, is because what you've actually done is you've actually turned the right shoulder towards greater internal rotation. So I need internal rotation for a bench press. I need internal rotation for my compressive strategy, constant orientation, and, and propulsive activities. And then I need to move through a space that demands I have internal rotation. So we got a triple whammy there. And so you got a ton of compression in that right shoulder under these circumstances. And so that may be why your client is experiencing right shoulder pain. Um, this is actually a really cool little little uh, compensatory strategy and it's probably not that uncommon. So uh, probably what I'll do, is when, as soon as I get a little bit of time, Ben, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go into the gym. I'll probably grab, grab Eric um, and, and we'll go through um, how this is actually happening. So, so um, um, if I don't do that soon, please send me a reminder. All right, so. What's our solution here? Step number one, because you're dealing with a painful situation, you're gonna to have to clear this client for any structural issues. And so if you don't have the capacity to do that, I suggest you get them to somebody that can. Let's rule out anything that, that may be, be important under these circumstances, because whenever we're dealing with pain, we've gotta clear those uh, structural issues. Number two, uh, take a break from a bench press. Um, you basically got two options here. You either take the bench press away because it is problematic, or you keep training the heck out of it as hard as you possibly can until it breaks, and then you have to take a break from the bench press. Either way, you're gonna have to take a break. I suggest you do the, the, uh, the first option there, much safer and, and uh, much more caring um, for that client. Um, in fact, what I would do, Ben, is I would remove all barbell exercises from his program at this point. You're basically fixing the extremities under any circumstance, whether we're talking about a squat, a deadlift, a, a row, or, or any kind of pressing. You're fixing the extremities in a position that are going to promote more internal rotation. From a rehab standpoint, um, if you again, if you don't do manual therapies yourself, you're probably going to want to find somebody that does. Um, if this person has any level of, of hypertrophy or, or is, is actually a very, very strong human being, you're probably going to need some help getting um, this, this rib cage to move. So you got to get a dynamic infrasternal angle. So that might require some manual therapy. We need sternal movement because if you're, if you're missing internal rotation, you don't have pump bundle 
pump handle movement in the anterior thorax, so we need to recapture that. Um, clavicles are, are going to be be limited in the ability be, um, ability to rotate. We got to get the ribs to move more effectively. You're going to have to decompress the the scapula from the dorsal rostral space. So that's that's a manual technique, by the way. I have a video of that on YouTube. I also have one for the um, for the uh, um, scapular elevation. So so look at those two. And and if you, again, if you don't do manual therapies, get somebody that can apply those techniques. Um, you may have to have somebody that that's good with their hands to help reduce some of the concentric orientation as well. Basically, you've got a guy that's really, really compressed, and you've got to get a whole bunch of expansion here um, to restore his ability to move uh, freely through space. Okay, from a rehab exercise standpoint, um, I got a couple of videos on YouTube um, specifically for dorsal rostral expansion. So there's a seated variation, and then there's a better band pull apart video um, that is also um, really effective for dorsal rostral expansion, one seated, one standing. Um, you can immediately go to some sort of high oblique sit activity, which is gonna help start to um, reshape the, the thorax a little bit, get some of that anterior posterior expansion. Um, and, and as you can move into a lower oblique sit um, type of an activity, which would be, uh, be closer to what looks like a side plank variation, um, you'll start to get some, some pump handle activity uh, from that. You can do supine cross connects, so they should be in a non-provocative, uh, position based on on the upper extremity, and then a sideline propulsive activity um, will also be helpful. Again, sideline is a great way, especially for these wide people, to get some of that anterior posterior expansion because we're taking advantage of gravity. Once you can capture 90 degrees of shoulder flexion uh, without pain, supine arm bars are now on the table. You can throw in a screwdriver on top of that. <clears throat> excuse me, to promote some internal external rotation, and then you can eventually move to a prone propulsive activity, which is going to get you a ton of that, that uh, posterior expansion and yielding strategy uh, that your client is lacking. Um, if you want to take you into the gym, um, we've got suitcase carries that are probably on the table right now. Um, eventually, you can probably turn that into a, a rack carry so we can get some ER and IR out of that. Backwards sled drags um, with, with two handles to promote the yielding strategy posteriorly. So you get some expansion, you get some pump handle action. You're also gonna get, get some hip mobility out of that as well. Um, high rep tricep push downs uh, with a band. Um, also uh, is gonna keep you close to that transition between internal and external rotation and give you some of the yielding strategy uh, posteriorly in that dorsal rostral space. Again, you're gonna need that. So dumbbell curl variations, there's a bunch of videos on my YouTube channel um, for that that you can also use to help keep that dorsal rostral space expanded. The key element with any of the resistive activities that I've just mentioned is that you can breathe through it. The minute you have a breath holding strategy under any circumstance during these activities, you are promoting the limitation that you are trying to, to alleviate. So keep that in mind. So in a nutshell, what you got is you got something that's very, very compressed. They're using compensatory strategies um, during the, the activities in question. So in the bench press, maybe they're carrying them around, I don't know, but either way, when they're bench pressing, this is what they're using. So you have to reduce the compressive strategies and, and eliminate the interference 
um, through all of the activities that you're that you're doing. So you might have to restructure some programming. Unilateral activities are going to be much more effective than, than bilateral symmetrical activities and take the barbell out of their hands. So Ben, I hope that gives you something to work with. If it doesn't, if you need more, go to askbillhartman at gmail.com and we will, we will provide you another solution if you have another question. Everybody have a great Wednesday and I will see you. Oh, coaches, uh, come to the Coffee and Coaches conference call tomorrow morning, 6 a.m. It's going to be Thursday. It's chips and salsa day tomorrow. Have a great day. Good morning. Happy Thursday. I have Neuro Coffee in hand and it is perfect. And I must say it's exceptional. The basic rules, the basic rules. You have to have ER to express motion. And then I need IR into the ground to produce the force. You will find a way to IR. It just doesn't necessarily make it terribly efficient every time. And if it alters the, the, the especially with a high velocity, so, so arm speed, arm speed on a, on a professional baseball pitcher is somewhere between 7,000 and 9,000 degrees per second. Okay. So to give you an idea of how fast that is, take your arm and, and swing it in a circle as fast as you can, and then do that 20 times in a second. That's how fast the arm is moving when they're throwing a baseball. So Bill, real quick, just to summarize from my understanding for not only athletes, but if you're in general trying to increase force production for whether it be like golf or shot put or anything, mm -hmm. the idea is you would like to create more external rotation for the ability to create force. However, if you don't have that capacity, you're not going to be able to. Okay. <clears throat> external rotation came first. All right, you, embryologically speaking, it comes first. Evolutionarily speaking, it comes first. IR is force production in the ground. So back, back when you were a swimmer, you didn't need to produce force into the ground, okay? External rotation provides you a, a space to move and to demonstrate velocity, okay? You can't move quickly in internal rotation. It's not designed for it. External rotation, very, very fast, okay? So for me to express force, I have to have enough external rotation to access the position of internal rotation. So, so ER comes first. I have to have a place to, to go, and then I have to be able to move into that place. And that's, that's where I can superimpose the internal rotation on top of it, okay? So since you brought, do you work with golfers, Jordan? No, I just, for some reason, golf came into mind as okay. rotation well, loading. Like any, any kind of turning sport, right, is going to be very, very similar in, re in regards to the rules, okay? So when the golfer takes the, the club into the top of a backswing, he, he is moving towards a position of external rotation, okay? So he has to create a position of external rotation. So it's the space where he can access the, the shape of his body and external rotation. And then he turns into it. So, so the hip and the pelvis are oriented such that I have this, whatever the maximum amount of external rotation that I have. And then the pelvis will turn towards that. And that's the internal rotation. So both are always happening at the same time. That's why you hear me use the word bias, because that tells me I have more of one than the other. Okay. And so, so 
you have to have the external rotation to be able to access the positions that you produce the most force in. If I narrow, if I narrow the external rotation space, I've reduced my potential for internal rotation efficiency. Doesn't mean I can't produce it. I'm just gonna find another way to do it. So what some people do when they don't have enough ER, that which means that they narrow their IR, they dump their pelvis forward and that pushes into the ground. Perfect, there's my internal rotation. Because ultimately what internal rotation is, is a downward force. We just happen to create it by turning inward, okay? So again, you just think about, think about the first amphibian that came out of the water and decided to walk on land. He's used to swimming like this, right? And then he gets up on land and there's gravity to deal with. And now he has to go, instead of going like this, he's gotta go like that. He's gotta turn in and push, right? Totally different. You know, if somebody's just a performance related issue, right? It's not a pain related issue. It's not an injury kind of a thing. It's like, you just have to really well define what you want that outcome to be. Like what measure are you going to be chasing? And then you just, again, it's just a stepwise process. It's like every two weeks you're following a key performance indicator and you're going, okay, did this change? Yes. Okay. What was our, what was our test that we we're using to tell us that we were on the right track in the first place? That's the process. It's not like you're going to write this magical 12 week program and you're going to go, everything's going to be great by the end of 12 weeks. It's like, anybody ever written one of those? Never? <laughs> yeah, me neither. You know? No, I have. I mean, well, you try, like you project. It's like, so there's yeah. nothing wrong with projecting outward, but if you're not following some, some sort of indicator that tells you that you're on track, it's like you just wasted 12 weeks. If you get to the end of 12 weeks and it didn't happen, guess what? Hmm. Wrong program. And now what they do, and the reason that you have like, this is what, I mean, I don't know, this is like an iPhone 4 or something like that, but there's like a gajillion iPhones now. It's like they just slowly reintroduce new technologies, right? And so, so they, they create this, this minimum viable product of, of whatever it is that they're trying to develop, and then they just slowly improve it over time. That's what training is. So, so, so what we need to do is we need to, 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 to write programs the same way that they write software. It's like, okay, how much improvement can you make in two weeks that accomplishes the goal? Did it work? Cool. Okay, we'll keep going on that, on that direction, and then we, we, can, we see improvement. And then at some point in time, you're going to hit the impasse where it's not going to change. It's like, okay, there's where you make the next tweak in the program. So it's like this continuous improvement over time versus trying to project out, which you can't do for any human being on the planet. You can't project anything 12 weeks out. You have no idea. Mm -hmm. Way too far ahead. I love that. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> that's actually super helpful. Yeah. But that's how you write a program. It's like you write, like the way that I write a program is like I have this general idea of where I want to go. And then I can only deal with the acute, right? Because I have no idea what the response is going to be. So what if somebody has like a crappy night of sleep, they miss four meals, they had a fight with their significant other, and then they come into the gym and it's a crappy day. And I had the hardest day, you know, of the month planned and they don't have the resources for it. It's like, I can't predict that. I can't predict that. So you got to, you got to, again, we're, we're, we're constantly adapting to, to the intention and the desired outcome. And then the potential changes that are available to us. What, what resources do I have? Uh, uh, periodization manual. And you read the programs in there. Um, 
those weren't pre-written programs. Those were executed programs that, that were successful. It doesn't mean that that's how you program, <laughs> okay? It's just a representation of a program. Does, everybody, does that make sense? Did everybody get that? Give me a thumbs up. Yes. So it's like the archetype of a standard Russian program, essentially. No, it's like, it's like, here's what we did over time. And this is what worked. It's like, you didn't see this, like you're seeing the- Right, end. it didn't actually exist. Right, like, yeah. like, literally, like they wrote down what they did. They didn't plan the program and then execute it. They just said, what are you doing today? Okay, I'm gonna write that down. And then they printed it. And everybody goes, oh, this is what a program looks like. And so then they, then they, they literally duplicate that program and they go, I don't know, we didn't get a very good outcome. When the reality is, it's like they didn't, they didn't, they just didn't, they weren't guided by principles. They were trying to follow the cookbook, right? But you're seeing, you're seeing historical information. It doesn't, it, you, what you want to take away from that stuff is what guiding principles did they use to execute this, right? Rather than this is how you program. Because if I wrote a programming book, it would be a very short book. It would probably have like, you know, three statements. It would be like, uh, what do you want to do? Do something. Did it do that? There you go. $49.95. Why does it matter which arm you're carrying the weight in in a suitcase carry? Good morning. Happy Friday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. All right, an unusual Friday. I got somebody coming in from out of town to train, so we're gonna we're gonna go take care of him later on today. So we got to dig into today's Q and A. This comes from a conversation with Dan. Dan says that um, I'm having trouble distinguishing how a suitcase carry promotes a contralateral max propulsion and an ipsilateral one arm kettlebell split squat promotes an overcoming strategy on the same side as the kettlebell. And so what this really is, is a question about what is the influence of a unilateral load? And so what we'll do is we'll, we'll, we'll break this down into three different activities. So we'll look at normal walking, we'll look at a suitcase carry, and then we'll look at the, the split squat. And what you're gonna see is, is the commonalities across all three activities. And so uh, first and foremost, we wanna look at normal walking. And so normal walking has a max propulsive moment. And so this is at maximum pronation. This is maximum force into the ground. This is maximum internal rotation. And where this would occur, if we're looking at a foot, is where this was gonna occur. So remember we have our heel rocker, the foot comes down, we've got our early propulsive foot, and then we're gonna have an ankle rocker that brings the foot across. And this is where the foot starts to, to acquire its internal rotation, its pronation. And right as that medial heel wants to break off the ground, that's gonna be max propulsion. And so when we're looking at, at, at normal walking, what we wanna recognize is that the contralateral arm, so if we're looking at the left foot at max propulsion, the right arm is gonna be pointing straight down towards the ground. And so this is, this is important when we're talking about this contralateral versus, versus ipsilateral influence because if we go to a suitcase carry and we start to look at how a suitcase carry works, what that suitcase carry is doing is it's actually holding the arm down at this max propulsion moment in regards to what the upper extremities are, are doing during walking. And so now we have to say, okay, what is this ipsilateral load or contralateral load, depending on which foot we're looking at, 
really influence this. So if we're looking at the left foot with a right suitcase carry, we've got a right arm that's gonna be held down in, in its max propulsive moment. And so what we're gonna do is then is we're gonna actually enhance the contralateral max propulsion moment in the foot. And so what we're gonna see is we're gonna see an increase in the loading during max propulsion. And so we're gonna have a very, very strong IR, internal rotation force into the ground with the left foot with this right suitcase carrying. So if you watch the video here, you'll actually kind of see that, that there's a little bit of a limp that would be associated with, with this ipsilateral carry. Now this is obviously can be magnified, like the heavier the weight that, that, you, that you carry, you're gonna see a much more bigger uh, compensatory strategy here. But the thing that I want you to recognize is that, that that ipsilateral load does change things. So now if we look at this from an ipsilateral standpoint, and so I'm carrying the weight in, in, the, right, in the right arm, what I should see then is a reduction in this medial heel contact that we would associate with our max propulsive phase. And so that's exactly what happens. And so what we have now is we have the right suitcase carry on the right side, inducing a lightening of this, this max propulsive force during, during the right foot contact. So this, this ER actually, um, it reduces the max pronation moment. This maintains extra rotation through the, the gait cycle. And so what we end up with is an enhancement of the, the um, posterior overcoming action on the right side with the right suitcase carry. Now, let's take this concept and let's move it to the split squat because we're gonna see the exact same thing in the split squat. So if we look at this from a contralateral perspective, I got weight in the right hand, and what this is gonna do, it's gonna, gonna induce a little bit more of the internal rotation on the contralateral side. So my left leg lead is now going to be able to internally rotate easier. If we looked at this from the, the ipsilateral perspective then, so now I'm gonna have a right foot forward split squat with a right side load. What I'm gonna see is I'm gonna see again the inducement of a little bit more of an ER bias. It's gonna enhance my ability to create the overcoming action coming up out of the split squat. So again, all we have to do is we have to look at the concepts of normal walking and then how does this ipsilateral versus contralateral load influence. And so again, if we're looking at the contralateral, we're gonna enhance our ability to produce either max P or internal rotation. And if we're looking at it from an ipsilateral standpoint, we're going to enhance the ability to ER or reduce that max propulsive phase as we're, as we're walking. So Dan, I hope that helps a little bit. If you have any other questions, please send them to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com, and I will see you guys next week.